Good morning, church. It's great to be with you again to share God's word. And um, I'm glad everyone's glad that South Africa won against the Lions yesterday. I'm glad that you guys are wearing your South African shirts. Thank you for that. Um, I'm excited to, to bring to you the third section of our study of the Gospel of John. And uh, just a small summary is that you, you remember that two weeks ago we started the, the series and we looked at three, possibly four, very key, ver- key names of Jesus Christ, very important for our faith. And then last week David continued and added a few more onto that, names and characteristics of that. And David took us through the majority of chapter two where he, he looked at the, the wedding at Cana and Jesus' first a miracle. And so today we're looking at the third chapter of, of the ch- uh, Gospel of John, and we're going to be looking at the necessity, the need, and the basis of the rebirth, amongst other things. Um, before we do, uh, let's just pray. Lord God, we, we do thank you for your word, and um, we thank you how your word changes us, uh, because you use the Spirit and you change us internally. Lord, your word is true, and we know that. And so today we pray that you would speak to our hearts and that you would change us and that you'd mold us into the character that you want us to be. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so turn your Bibles to John chapter 3. We're going to get a lot to go through today and let's get to it. So John chapter 3. So we're going to look at the John chapter 3 in three sections. You might even your Bibles have three separate sections in your chapter 3, in your Bible, depending on what version you have. But pretty much it's agreement that the first 15 verses is really the account of Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he has a chat with him, and Jesus gives him some very important information. And that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today. From verse 16 to verse 21, the Apostle John summarizes the meeting of Nicodemus and Jesus. And then from verse 22 to 36, we look at the transition of John the Baptist to focus on Jesus. I'm going to ask you a question. Do you remember the time when you first came to know Christ? Do you remember when you, how, and how or when you became a Christian? Do you remember that? Some of you might be very vivid memory, remembering that specific day or time. For myself, it was a period of my life where I must have given my life to the Lord, I don't know how many times, just to make sure I did it right different ways on my knees, standing up in, by myself with people just to make sure I did it right. But you might remember yourself how you came to know Christ. Well, today we're going to have a look at Nicodemus, maybe not the way he came to Christ, but we're going to follow him on his journey to see his transition and how his life changed as a result of, of um, what we understand about his life. And so maybe that gives you some memories as we go through it. So let's get stuck into it. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So who is Nicodemus and what do we know? Well, verse 1 tells us that he was a a man of the Pharisees. He was a Pharisee and it says he was a ruler of the Jews. So I think it's fair to say that he was part of the religious elite. He was the top dog, so to speak. He was the guy that they would go to. He was the great teacher. The Jews would go to him for the final authority. It seemed to be, or at least one of the people of the final authority. He was a ruler of the Jews. It's quite a high, uh, you know, a high uh, standard to have, isn't it? But also, this is not only in, in, in the first 15 verses of 
John chapter 3, do we know about Nicodemus? Only the Gospel of John tells us about Nicodemus. And we see a bit more about him in John chapter 7, which we'll come to in a moment, and John 19. And so there's three accounts of Nicodemus, and that's all we know of him. And so out of those three accounts of Nicodemus, we can work out who this guy was. Let's continue. In verse 2, it says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. So he has the right perspective. And Nicodemus says, For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So we're told that he comes by night. Now it's very interesting because in those days there weren't street lights everywhere and big lights. He came by night. Why do you think Nicodemus came by night? Perhaps he didn't want to be seen. And so he wants to speak to Jesus. He really has an urge to speak to him and ask him these questions and say, what's, what's, what are you about? I see you're different. But he comes at night so that no one sees. He's genuinely curious and wants to know more. He's drawn to Jesus, and we can see that. In verse 3, it says that um, it says Jesus answered to him, Truly, truly. Now, John's, the, 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 the Gospel of John is the only place where we see truly, truly twice. Usually, the other Gospels all have one, and he for some reason has two. So he's really stressing the fact that Jesus says, truly, truly. In other words, I kid you not, truly, truly, I say to you, unless, unless, and that's the necessity of the new birth, unless one is born again. And in verse 5, he says it again, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. And that's a necessity. Without birth, you and I, the rebirth in terms of spiritual side, you and I cannot be in the kingdom of God. It's an absolute necessity to come to Christ. Nicodemus isn't getting it. In verse 4, he says, I don't get it. So you're telling me that someone has to be born again? I don't get it. He says, how can a man be born when he's old? In other words, I'm old. How can I now jump back in my mother's womb? And he's, he's, imagine him scratching his head thinking, what's going on? Well, we know from 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, it's folly. In your version, it might say foolishness to those who are perishing. Nothing of, of the Christian life makes sense. Have you had a chat with someone about the spiritual things, about God things, who's non-Christian, and they just don't get it? You just see cricket sounds in their brain when you're speaking to them. Well, at this stage, Nicodemus, as far as we know, hadn't come to faith yet. And for him, it was strange what Jesus was saying. In fact, Ephesians 2 verse 1 says that we are dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. So really, I know we spoke about it two weeks ago, but really when we're born into the world as humans, we are still born spiritually. That's really what the Bible is saying. We are still born spiritually. Although we are alive and we grow, we are still born spiritually. Spiritually, we are dead because we are descendants of Adam. And so we know that because of what we have in Scripture, and we know that we have to be born again spiritually to enter the kingdom of heaven. But Ephesians 2 says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. 
So Jesus now understands that Nicodemus isn't getting it. The lights aren't going on, so to speak. And so um, Jesus tries to explain. He says in verse 6, That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He's saying, Nicodemus, listen up. Nicodemus, listen up. You're talking about a man entering a mother's womb. We're not talking about physical here. I'm talking about spiritual matters. And in verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, he's saying, you cannot see the effects. You, know, you cannot see the wind, right? He says, but you, 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 sorry, you, you cannot see the wind, but you can see the effects of wind. In the same way, the Spirit moves and you can't see it. Nicodemus, he's saying, we're talking about something spiritual here, not physical. And you and I think, okay, now Nicodemus is going to get it. Now he understands, and now he's going to get it. Do you remember when you were born? Do you remember that day? Not? I know, I was born at a very young age. And, uh, but, but I still also myself don't remember when I was born. Do you remember when you were born? No one does. Do you remember making the decision to be born? Do you remember deciding, I need to be born? No. And that sounds silly, doesn't it? But spiritually, you'll be strange how many Christians and how many churches teach that we decide. It seems like we decide. But actually, God decides how we come to faith and who is born. And so we, we might not remember that in the same way we're born spiritually. We also don't remember how. But God just moves. And God draws you to himself, and then you repent. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. That's a very important topic to take. Ephesians chapter 2. In the first few verses of chapter 2, it's profound, and I'd love to go through Ephesians one day with you. It's my favorite book in the Bible. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, it says, as I mentioned earlier, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, following the prince of power and the spirit, spirit of the power of the air and the spirit that is now work in the sons of disobedience, amongst whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul, writing to the, to the, the, the church in Ephesus, says, we we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. In fact, it talk, talks in verse 2 about we being the sons of disobedience. We all lived in the passions of our flesh, in verse 3, carrying out our desires. And we were by nature children of wrath. So that's interesting. And then in verse 5 it says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, you see there it is again, spiritually, we are dead in our trespasses, stillborn spiritual babies, made us alive together with Christ. There it is made us alive together with Christ. You see, Christ is the agent, and he's the basis of us becoming alive. And then, by grace you have been saved. Why do you think Paul would write, by grace you have been saved, if we decide to come to faith ourselves? By grace. God has grace on your life. God allows you to see your sin. God allows you to understand the gospel. And then you respond, and then you come to Christ. Yes, we need to respond. Yes, we need to repent. 
but it's God that draws us. By grace, you have been saved. It's clear that I believe that from scriptures that grace precedes faith. That we come to faith, you're actually already saved when you come to faith. When you say the sinner's prayer, God already saved your heart. You just needed to say that prayer and make it official. When we're baptized, that's not when we become Christians. It's, be, it, it's already happened. And, and we baptize, we show the world that we are changed inside. So the need of the new birth is placed in us by the Spirit. Now there's, there's a bit of deception here that goes on. There's a bit of a warning. Is that sometimes people think that new birth, that, that they have the new birth because they do the, the church things. They go to church. And oh, that guy down the road, oh, he goes, he's a Christian. Oh, why is he a Christian? Well, he goes to church every Sunday. You know, all the church things. Remember Nicodemus now? He was a ruler of the Jews. He was a top dog, in the, in the, so, so to speak, in the Sanhedrin. He was all doing all the teaching. He even dressed differently. People could see Nicodemus. They knew him. And yeah, Nicodemus was coming to Jesus saying, Jesus, I don't get it. I'm confused. I don't understand what you're saying. You see, Nicodemus had all the knowledge, all the, all the knowledge of Scripture. I and mean, he was the teacher. They came to him for advice. And he's saying, I don't get it. Have a look in, in verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? A second time, he says, how can these things be? And Jesus answers very directly in verse 10. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? He says, Nicodemus, are you kidding me? You are, the, you are the teacher of Israel. You're the one they go to for answers, and you don't understand this? How can this be? So Jesus goes straight to the point, and we learn two things about this. First of all, we should not be fooled by our knowledge of Scripture. Think that our knowledge is a, is a means for us to, 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 to pay for our sins and to become a Christian. It doesn't matter what your knowledge of the Scriptures are, unless your heart has changed and as we learned now, unless you are born again, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. doesn't matter what your intellect is. doesn't matter what you know or who your father is or who your mother is or which family you came from or how many years you've been in the church. Unless you are born again by the Spirit and water, will you come to, into the kingdom of God. The second thing we learn about this is, and I find this quite comforting, is Jesus spoke very direct to Nicodemus. Very direct to Nicodemus. Sometimes telling the truth, friends, to someone who doesn't know the gospel is exactly what they need. And sometimes, though, I'm afraid that some Christians or some churches just sugarcoat the gospel. Don't they do that? They sugarcoat the gospel. They, they say it in a nice way. Look, I don't, and they think, I don't want to offend this person. I don't want to you know, hurt their feelings. So I'll give them a gospel that's very nice. You know, come to Christ because Christ is great and he will make your life better and life will be easy. Come to Christ. Please think about it. Oh, no, you know, I'm not really, you know, you're going to go to hell. You must come, you know, heaven's a great place and all this stuff is good. But do you ever tell people if they say, well, you know, tell me about your Christianity. You can, do you ever say that it's hard? Do you ever say that people will ridicule you, make fun of you? Do you ever tell them that? Oh, no, we would never dare. Why? Why not? Jesus here doesn't say, Nicodemus, it's okay. You haven't got it. Don't worry about it. We'll have a chat in a few weeks time again. Isn't that how we respond to people who don't know the gospel? Don't worry, we'll chat again in two weeks' time. No. Jesus says, 
Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Snap it out of it, Nicodemus. So, you might say, well, this is quite rough. It's quite tough, Jesus. You know, I mean, we've got the New Testament, don't you? On your laps right now, you've got the New Testament. You've got the whole canon of Scripture. We understand this because we read the Scripture. But Nicodemus, he had the judges, the counts of the judges. He had the law. He had the poetry. He had some the scrolls of the, of the prophets. And that's all he had. So this is pretty, you know, pretty heavy. Well, Ezekiel 36, and turn there with me. Ezekiel 36, which, of course, Nicodemus would know very well. In uh, verse 24 of Ezekiel 36, he says, and, and, and listen carefully. So um, before we read that, let me just read what's on the board there. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but do not but you do not receive our testimony. Listen to verse 12. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then he says in verse 13, No one has ascended into heaven except he who is descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Ezekiel 36. Now keep that in mind. From verse 24, it says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. That's interesting. Jesus said, what? He said, unless you are born of the spirit and water, of the spirit and water. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will sprinkle you with water, and I'll put a new spirit in you. I will sprinkle you with water, and put a new spirit in you. That's exactly what Jesus said. We go back to... Jesus said in verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. And then he says in verse, in, um, in verse 7, Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. And listen to what he says in end of verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus says, you have to be born of the Spirit and of water. He says, Nicodemus, it's a spiritual thing we're talking about. So is he being harsh? Shouldn't the ruler of the Jews know Ezekiel 36? Shouldn't he know that? I think so. Do you have a desire to grow in the Lord? Do you have a real desire to do that yourself? Do you really have a desire to know more of God and to be in his scriptures? Well, Nicodemus seemed to have this. He seemed to have this humility about him coming to you, uh, coming to Jesus. And we have to, if we want to be serious about our growth, we have to be humble. We have to be humble. In fact, no one will come to Christ unless they are humble. So what else do we know about Nicodemus? Nicodemus in the second section is, is about second text about Nicodemus in John chapter 7. In verse 50 it says, Nicodemus, who had gone before him, 
who was one of them, said to them, Does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? The Pharisees were saying, we've got to get this guy. Send Jesus. Let's talk to him. And Nicodemus stands up in all the Pharisees and says, hang on. Surely we should give him a fair trial? This is taken a while later in John chapter 7. Do you think Nicodemus' heart was beginning to change? Now he's standing up for Christ. Remember, he was in the dark. He went during night to speak to Jesus, hidden from everyone. Now, in front of the Pharisees, he says, hey, we've got to give this man a fair trial. There's something different about this guy. Interesting. His heart starts to change. John chapter 19, the, the third account of Nicodemus. We see that Nicodemus also, in verse 39, who early had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So Jesus had been crucified by this stage. And who comes and prepares Jesus' body? Nicodemus. First by night, hidden from everyone. Then in front of all his Pharisees, we've got to give this man a fair trial. And now he comes afterwards, and he's one of the people coming to prepare Jesus' body in front of everyone. Do you think, think Nicodemus' heart had changed? I think so. It took a while. But it started at that first discussion of Jesus. I wonder if Jesus had never been direct, absolutely direct with him, if he'd ever really gone home and thought about it seriously. Sometimes we just need to be direct with people and tell people like it is and tell the gospel like it is. Just an interesting thing about, I won't go into it, it won't be time to go through it, but interesting thing about the myrrh and aloes, it says that he brings 75 pounds of weight. 75 pounds of weight. Now, the Greek word for that is itras ekaton. Now, why am I telling you this? Is because literally it means liters a hundred, liters a hundred, and I'm I'm sure the 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 translators, being American, probably just translated it to pounds. But in the New King James, you might see it says a hundred pounds, whereas in NIV and ESV it says seventy-five pounds. I think the, the the issue is not so much the how much it is or or the quantity, but it was a lot, and it was worth a lot. How do we know it's worth a lot? Well, in James, uh, sorry, in John chapter 12, in John chapter 12, Mary Magdalene was, if you remember, she had some perfume, and she put the perfume on Jesus' feet, remember, with, and she was wiping it with her hair. And we're told in that account in John 12 verse 3 that it was worth 300 denarii. We know that because Judas helped us, Judas Iscariot. He said, why do you waste that, that oil on Jesus' feet? Should we not sell it at the market for 300 denarii? And the denarii, one denarii is a, way, a day's wages. So that what, what Mary was, was putting on Jesus' feet, one pound worth, was worth just less than a year's wages. That was very expensive stuff. Would you spend a year's wages on blessing God? Would you? Well, Nicodemus says 75 pounds, 75 that amount. Now, we don't know if that's it. you came with a barrel of 100 liters. We're not sure. But the, the key is there is that Nicodemus knew that this was the Christ. He knew it. And he came with everything he had. He said, I'm going to bless this body with the most expensive perfume. I believe Jesus, uh, believe Nicodemus came to faith. In the, we go on in the text, and it says in verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
What's this referring to? Well, Numbers 21, we won't read it for the sake of time, but Numbers 21, you remember that the people rebelled against God and God sent fiery serpents down to bite the people. And people were dying. And what did he do? He said to Moses, he gave him instruction, he said, make a brass serpent and put it on what? Do you remember? Put it on a pole. And he said, whoever looks at that, whoever looks at that pole will be healed. It wasn't about the pole. It wasn't about the serpent. Yeah, Jesus says, and Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. He's linking it to someone. So must the Son of Man be lifted up. You see, he's saying, if we look upon Jesus, we look upon Jesus on that cross and have faith in him, that is how we get the rebirth. And he's referring to the same way Moses lifted up and said, look at that serpent and be healed. In the same way, we need to look at the cross of Jesus, the cross behind me. And let be a reminder of the cross of Jesus, that Jesus died. And that's who we have faith in. And that's how we are healed spiritually, is if we have faith in Christ Jesus. Then we get arguably the most common or the most popular verse in the Bible. Well, the most quoted verse in the Bible, John 3, verse 16. But it starts with for, and that's very important, for God. There's a conjunction word there. It could be therefore. It could be and or because. So basically he's saying, now John goes to the next section. He says, well, based on the account between Jesus and Nicodemus, John goes into a bit of theology. And he says, think about that. Remember what I've just said about Nicodemus and the account? Now it makes so much sense. Now this verse makes more sense. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes, looks on the cross, remember, looks on the cross and believes in him and has faith in him, won't perish but have eternal life. That's the basis, friends, of our rebirth in faith in Christ. Not how, how well you know the scriptures. Not how long you've been in the church, attending church. No, it's about faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to skip to verse 36 in a moment to compare, and we're going to come back to verse 17. But verse 36, to me, is almost a paraphrase of verse 16. So have a look at verse 16. It talks about God loving the world, about giving his son, about belief in him, and about eternal life. Have a look at verse 36 of John chapter 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. It's the same thing. Whoever believes in Jesus Christ has eternal life. But verse 36 does something a bit different. It goes on the negative. If I had to choose one verse in this chapter to tell you about Jesus Christ, if I had to choose one verse only, people, everyone would say verse 16 would be the one. No, I would choose verse 36. And why is verse 36 not so well quoted? And why is John 3 verse 16 so well quoted? I'll tell you why. The second part of John 36. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Is that a nice verse? Does it give you warm and fuzzy feelings? That's why this verse isn't quoted so often. I prefer this. Because when you speak to someone, unless they come to know Christ personally, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's a serious warning. Sounds different to you, for God so loved the world 
He loves the world. Believe in him and you, and you, won't, have, and you won't perish but have eternal life. I'm not saying that's not truth. It is absolutely truth. It's a fantastic verse to, to use, John 3.16. But I prefer John 3, 3 verse 36. It gets straight to the heart. It's like Jesus. He doesn't beat around the bush. It reminds you of Romans chapter 2 verse 5. Romans chapter 2 verse 5 says, But because of your hard and, and impotent, 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 I can't say the word, of that horrible heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of, of wrath when God's judgment is, righteous judgment will be revealed. In Romans 5 verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by, by who? Who are we saved by? Saved by him from the wrath of God. Remember I said two weeks ago that when, when, when you stand in judgment, for, for those people that say that we're saved, those people are saved. What do we save from? We save from God, from his wrath, from his judgment. The day you are born, it's like a dam that's built and, and trickles water and you sin and you fall short and you sin and you fall short and that dam gets bigger and bigger and bigger and God is, God's, God is holding back this judgment. He's holding back his wrath, it says, and it's getting bigger and you live life and you disappoint God and you disappoint God and you sin and you sin and that's just getting bigger and bigger. And one day, those who don't have that sin dealt with will stand before God and God will open up and he will unleash his wrath on them. Do you warn people about that? Or do you tell them that God loves you? Both. Both. Don't only tell them God loves you. But tell them if you do not turn, God's wrath, all the wrath that you've been building up for the whole, your whole life, will be opened up and he will deliver his wrath on you unless you come to faith. So those people who come to faith, that, that, that gate will open. There will be not a drop of water in that dam. Isn't that amazing? Not one drop of water. Why? Because Jesus has taken all that wrath away. So we have the rest of the account of um, John 3, from verse 17 onwards. So we have in verse 16, we have two sides. It's a contrast, isn't it? It's a contrast. And in, let's just go back there. So on this side over here, we have the believer, right? And on this side over here, we have the unbeliever. There's a contrast, believer, unbeliever. On this side, we have verse 16, the believer who gets eternal life. On this side, we have the unbeliever who is going to perish. In verse 18, we see that the believer will not be condemned on the day of judgment, but the person on this side, the unbeliever, will be condemned. In verse 19, we see that a believer hates darkness, but on the person on this side, the unbeliever, loves the darkness. They are drawn to the darkness because their works are hidden, it says. So the believer loves light, in verse 20, and the unbeliever hates the light. They want to get away from the light because the light exposes their sin. With the believer comes to the light because the light is Jesus. In verse 21, the believer comes to the light to show works in God, but the unbeliever stays in the darkness so the works are hidden. You see the contrast there in those verses? Verse 21 is quite profound. 
It says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You know, if, uh, if I walk into our lounge and it's dark night and, and I sometimes switch off the lights, I'm usually the last one going to bed and I switch the lights off and I switch the, the main light off and, and now it's dark. And so I think I can make it, I can do it. And I walk, so I remember where the furniture is, but I forgot that I left something on the ground and so I stubbed my toe. You see, when there's darkness, we can't see where we're going. But it's like that. I could have a look around. And I can turn the light on. I've got a dimmer at home, and we put the dimmer on a little bit. And then you can just make out where the, furn- the main furniture is, and you can make your way. But if I take that dimmer and I turn it slightly more, just a little bit more, then I notice there's things on the coffee table. and Oh, I've got to clean that up. I've got to take those cups away. And then I turn the light on a little more. And now I see the things on the floor that I stub my toe on. And I turn it off, turn it up just a little bit more, full brightness. And now I see the dust on the floor. And now I see the dust on the coffee table. Isn't that how it is with our lives? The more and more we open the scriptures and learn and study. Something five years ago, maybe, you'd read and go, yeah, whatever. Now we read it, we go, oh, no, this is terrible. Why is that? Because the believers go to the light. And the more they go to the light, the more you grow, the more you realize your sin. And you think, okay, I've, I've arrived. And then you read one more verse and you go, oh, what? Where did this verse come from? I'm, I fall so short. And then you deal with that and you go again. Next week you read another verse and you go, oh, I can't believe that. And as we go to the light, so God exposes. But those who are unbelievers, they get away from the light. They don't want the truth. They don't want it because they like the darkness. Got some time to turn to Colossians chapter 3. In fact, we don't have time. Sorry, I saw the time. <laughs> we'll go that another time. Verse 26. We see the, the next section of our, of our text. This is not working. Verse 26. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, He who was with you across the Jordan, he was with you across the Jordan, uh, to whom you bore witness. He's saying, no, the guy who said, look, behold, the Lamb of God, Jesus, he's baptizing and all are going to him. So what now? What do we do now? Do Do we keep doing what we're doing? Do we go to him? Do we stay with you? What do we do? And John answers in a beautiful way in verse 27. Awesome. John answered, a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given to him for heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy is my, of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. I need to read this to you, so please bear with me. Turn to Revelation chapter 19. John says, and I'll just read it once more. He says there in verse 29, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, and the friend of the bridegroom is he who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And why did John the Baptist say that? Revelation chapter 19, beautiful part of scripture. In verse 7 it says, Let us rejoice and exult to give him, glo- give him the glory. 
For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. The account here is that Jesus is the bridegroom, and the bride is his church. And the bride has made herself ready. The church of God has made itself ready. Look in Revelation chapter 21, in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the new earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice of the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Look in verse 9 of chapter 21. Then, he came, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he came away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. We'll stop there. So John the Baptist is saying, the one who is the bride is a bridegroom. He's saying, I can see it happening. And guess what? He says this. He says, uh, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly of the bridegroom's voice. John the Baptist is saying, I can see it. I can see it. There's Jesus over there, and there's the church, and I'm witnessing it. There it is. They're coming together. Jesus has come to prepare his church, to prepare his bride. Isn't that amazing? And he says, so awesome. He says, therefore, therefore, this joy of mine is complete. John says, I prepared the way for Jesus. He's come. I've done all the preparation. And his, his disciples say, well, what should we do now? And he's, he's basically telling them, my work here is done. My mission is complete. What a great thing it would be one day at the end of our lives to say, my mission is complete. Wouldn't you like that to be said about you? Wouldn't you like to have the peace to say, the mission is complete. I've done what I'm called to be. Or will you have regrets on one day? And then he ends. He must increase, but I. He must increase, but I must decrease. Why is that so? Well, the next few verses tells us why. In verse 31, he says, For he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to all the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He who bears witness to what has been seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he, he whom God has sent utters the word of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And then the great verse 36. We'll just end with this, friends. Personally, our mantra needs to be, he must increase, I must decrease. Is that your goal? That Christ is increased and you are decreased. So many times we have to be reminded of this fact because we live our own lives. We live for ourselves and we forget we should be living for Christ. John the Baptist knew he must increase, but I must decrease. As a church, let that be on our door as we walk in. Let that be reminded that whatever we do today, Whatever we talk about, whatever our ministry happens, that he must increase, 
but I must decrease. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much uh, that you have come to change people's lives. And for those who trust in you and those who have faith in you will be born again into a new life. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that those of us here today and listening in who have been born again, who have come to faith, Lord, that they will have one goal in mind, and that's to let you increase, but that they would decrease. It's all about your glory. And Lord, I especially pray for those people listening in today and here today who may not have come to that place of having full faith in you. Lord, I pray that you would change their heart, that you would give them a rebirth, a spiritual birth into the family of God. We commit this time to you and the rest of the service in Jesus' name. Amen.